Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hey everyone, it's James Kreppi with the Oregonian in Oregon Live, bringing you the latest edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast once again. After what has been a tumultuous and strange and unprecedented and wild and you name the adjective, all of the above, week, weekend, uh, and really where do we begin? Uh, And it would have been lovely, believe me, uh, to get the podcast out even sooner, but because of just how long a day Monday was, and we'll recap it quickly because obviously we certainly recognize uh, that folks know where we are at at this point and where Oregon finds itself back in the Pac-12 championship game for the second straight year, albeit under highly unusual circumstances, uh, but nothing that anybody needs to apologize for. It is just kind of the epitome of 2020 in myriad ways. We will try and capture and again and recap how we got here and get into a little bit of Friday night's game between Oregon and USC. As I mentioned, a wild week going back to late last week when there was the uncertainty as to whether or not Oregon was going to be able to play Washington, obviously then with the cancellation by Washington due to its positive cases and related contact tracing, then the search for a non-conference game, and Oregon contacted everyone there was to contact who had games canceled due to uh, cases with their opponents and the like from around the country by way of non-conference opponents. Uh, obviously, I've reported throughout the course of late last week, once Washington had mentioned that it had paused its operations, uh, that I, I reached out to literally every team in the country uh, who had an open week, even if their season had appeared over. I didn't want to leave a stone unturned and, and, and not catch something. Uh, and I'm sure there were probably numerous programs who thought I was crazy for even asking, but be that as it may, uh, Oregon did reach out to the non-conference teams who you would suspect them being uh, particularly Charlotte and Arkansas State. I have every reason to believe Ohio was contacted, though they never got back to me. Um, I have every reason to believe Ohio was contacted as well. Those were teams who had opponents cancel. Uh, I never got clarity for sure if they reached out to Kansas, uh, but bottom line, they explored every possibility. Uh, I was told they literally reached out to everybody there was to reach out to. There was simply not a way for a game to come together last week. So the Ducks go from preparing for a rivalry game that was supposed to decide the North Division on the field. Both teams wanted it. Both teams wish they could have played it. It could not be played. And then get through Saturday with what's focused across the league first 
the Cal Washington State game unfortunately being canceled due to another positive case at Cal and the related contact tracing that then put in and triggered the potential for if one more game was canceled and not played on Saturday that the Pac-12s agreed upon protocols for tiebreakers would go from the division champions to the two teams with the highest win percentage. And given that Colorado had lost early in the day to Utah and USC at that point, regardless of whether or not it beat UCLA, and obviously went on to beat UCLA, but regardless was going to be in the championship game once Colorado had lost. But then, like I say, had USC and UCLA not been played or had Oregon State and Stanford not been played, then the conference would have moved to top two teams in terms of conference win percentage rather than defaulting to the original plan of the division champions. Obviously, the games got played, and once Oregon State and Stanford kicked off, that's why the announcement came down at 7 o'clock Saturday night that the championship game was Washington and USC. However, I certainly recognize many fans did not know exactly that was why uh, the timing came at the time, you know, the announcement came at the exact time that it did, and the announcement made no reference to the situation that Washington found itself in and the uncertainty about whether or not the Huskies were going to be able to play or not. That was throughout Saturday. Then it spills into Sunday and still uncertainty, a lack of clarity by way of will there be a deadline, is there a timeline for when decisions are going to be made, the other matchups for this week announced on Sunday, including Oregon against Colorado. All of a sudden, teams start preparing for games, then obviously on Sunday for the week ahead. And still knowing that Oregon would fill in for Washington if they couldn't go, and Colorado would fill in for USC if they couldn't play. And of course, that game was set up to be played at the Coliseum on Sunday, excuse me, on Saturday uh, in the first place. Then we get into Monday, and the day begins. And like I say, Monday was, for the conference in terms of the news cycle, probably the longest day uh, with the most volume of news across the Pac-12 since September when the league elected to restart. And when on the day that the Big Ten announced it was going to have a season in the end, and then the Pac-12 had all sorts of movement going back to that day. Monday really was the longest day since then because the day began with uh, Clay Helton having his uh, game week press conference and saying that they had begun preparation for Washington but that the staff would start dedicating the evenings to Oregon prep just to be prepared just in case. Uh, but he was going over Washington. He was going over you know personnel. He was going over his own team uh, during the course of that Uh, before 8 a.m. on Monday. Then a couple of hours later, a report from John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News that there was not a deadline uh, for Washington to make a decision. And shortly after that, a report from the Seattle Times and Mike Varell that Washington was going to announce something by noon on Monday. Carl Durrell of Colorado has his press conference mid-morning uh, at 10 a.m. Pacific and 11 a.m. Mountain Time. And I asked him, 
what you know basically what does he have clarity in terms of if Oregon does step in for Washington here in the championship game what happens to Colorado and Carl Durrell does not know uh what what, what is going to shake out not more than an hour I think it was barely a half an hour after that press conference Washington comes out and announces that it is not going to be able to play in the championship game the league confirms that Oregon is in, Washington is out, and the matchup is then reset, and Colorado no longer has an opponent. So one of the top four teams in the league doesn't have an opponent at all, but still has to be on deck in case USC can't play, and there's still ambiguity in terms of when that obligation ends. Does USC still, uh, USC, does Colorado still fly down to USC? Uh, in the event that something takes place on and, and something should arise on Thursday? Uh, or is there a point of, is there basically a fail-safe point where Colorado's obligation, like are they, are they flying to Los Angeles for no reason, uh, in essence? Uh, or are they mandated to take on that trip? And in which case, who's shouldering the burden in terms of finances to, to make that happen? It, particularly when they don't have another opponent to play and they're not going to seek a non-conference game by the end of the day on Monday Rick George uh, the athletic director of Colorado announcing that Colorado will not seek a non-conference game and then we get into Monday evening and Mario Cristobal having his press conference and not just addressing all of the issues related to the switch and game plans and things that had gone on throughout the course of the day and the Ducks had opened up the day with a walkthrough style practice related to their preparation for Colorado uh, late during which the news came out that Washington was not going to be in and the players were then sent home. They could grab lunch. They could grab a short nap. They could do whatever. Uh, and then the coaching staff spent a couple of hours reconfiguring uh, and dedicating their game planning uh, to all about USC uh, and then devising not just the game plan, but then the practice plan for a practice Monday night. Uh, and like I say, then Mario having his press conference, addressing all of those things. Uh, and then amidst all of this, because it happened Sunday, Auburn, of course, firing Gus Malzahn after eight seasons and uh, electing to pay a enormous buyout, uh, either at or near an all-time record of over $20 million. And then rampant speculation uh, out of the Southeast that Mario Cristobal would be a candidate or a desired candidate for that job, potentially. Mario addressing that on Monday, and I think uh, certainly we all know by now uh, his responses there uh, about those rumors uh, were as direct as anybody, any coach has ever delivered uh, And when, when faced with that question. Uh, first off, that is a question that anybody should be flattered by when it's they themselves are in it. And frankly, I know and I recognize that Oregon fans uh, have a lot of angst uh, after the Willie Taggart experience from a few years ago and uh, seeing a coach leave after one year and making the remarks that he did. But not everyone is the same. Not every situation is the same. Uh, and I'm not speaking uh, uh, ill or, or taking shots at Willie Taggart in the process there. That, I, I leave that to others. Uh, and, and fans can, you know, already have their own assessments. I've never met the man. I, you know, I'm a, it's not for me to say. Um, I wasn't here covering the team. I didn't have personal experiences with it. I just I recognize 
why fans have the uh, angst about it. But Mario answered that as directly as one possibly can uh, when faced with the question of, hey, your name has been rumored out there connected with another opportunity. Uh, have you or your agent been contacted? And then what are some of the things you might consider in, some, in uh, making such a decision or something if we were faced with it? To say not only that uh, he has full faith uh, and trust and confidence in numerous individuals and leadership between Phil Knight and Ron Mullins and the administration at the university and the athletic department, but also to literally say that uh, obviously going through the contract renegotiation process that we've reported uh, at the Oregonian and Oregon Live for nearly a year now, uh, that after last season, after a Pac-12 championship, after the, the Rose Bowl win, that there was a process that it started. It got paused due to the pandemic starting, and now those talks had uh, reopened in recent weeks, uh, going back some time. Well, that was all happening way before Auburn made any decisions. Uh, so when you are amid a negotiation of that kind, uh, of course there's regular contact between uh if you have an agent, which most all coaches do, um, I say most all, not literally all, but pretty much all uh, coaches do. Of course, there's going to be regular contact with the uh, between the coach and his agent because, yeah, you're, uh, there's an ongoing negotiation taking place. Uh, and that was going on, again, before Auburn made any decisions. And then Mario answered it as directly as possible, saying exactly what he said and saying he, you know, that there would, he believes there'd be news coming on that front in the near future, and he looks forward to coaching at Oregon. Well, what more can one say to lead you down the path exactly where he intends to be and still protect the integrity of a negotiation process where it is not only about a single individual? And I'm not speaking for Mario here. I'm not his agent. I'm not his spokesman. I'm not any of those things. Just anybody who's in that position, even a private person who's not a college head football coach making millions of dollars when you are in that position though just as an individual in private industry you may only be looking out for yourself and your own interests but when you're a head football coach or any coach in major college athletics you've got and feel the responsibility for an entire enterprise of people underneath you from the assistant coaches uh, and their families to support staffers, analysts, strength and conditioning, academic, I mean, you name it, the sheer volume of people uh, who are tied to the enterprise, many of whom are tied to it because they were hired by a head coach. And I say, this doesn't just go for Mario Cristobal. This goes for any coach at the FBS level in football, in basketball. This is part and parcel to the situation. So I thought Mario handled it well, as well as I've ever seen a coach handle such a thing as directly as he did. Uh, so, again, obviously, we look forward to being able to report more news on that front uh, as it is developed. And then, of course, here we are on National Signing Day uh, with even more news to come uh, in terms of recruiting and the like. So lots to get through, lots to discuss. Lots to look forward to, both on the field, off the field, you name it, uh, for the Oregon football program. 
So that lays the groundwork for and goes through and recaps. And I realize it takes a few minutes to recap just how wild the last week was. But that is everything off the field. Now we get to everything on the field. And obviously I'm playing for a second straight Pac-12 championship, uh, a position that any program looks to be in. Uh, playing for a second straight conference championship uh, and doing that on a regular basis. That's what you aspire for. First, I'll take on the topic uh, that even Ducks fans uh, have a degree of uh, reservation about, at least some do, uh, certainly, that, listen, this is not the first place team in the division. And while, obviously, there's a lot of the back and forth but between Oregon and Washington and who's the North Division champion and all the like because it wasn't settled on the field and all that. Hey, that's kind of what everybody signed up for in 2020 in terms of the potential for that. However, obviously it's not a great position for the Pac-12 conference to be in where neither division had the first-place team face the second-place team during the course of the season. It was due to issues with the first-place team having COVID cases and related contact tracing that ruled those games out. It was only separated by one game. These are all the conditions that make it where the end results, obviously, were hardly ideal for any of the teams involved. And then if you want to go down the rabbit hole even further, and again, this is a Ducks-centric podcast, we're not going to get to every other team, every other issue, But obviously, there's more teams that could have a a gripe about one aspect or another of the season. Uh, I mean, you look at Stanford, who went 3-1 and in the North Division. And the loss was to Oregon when Davis Mills is ruled out, and other players, but Mills is ruled out, starting quarterback for the season opener, hours before kickoff due to a testing protocol problem, not an actual positive test. And then they go on the road for what will now be three straight weeks, having just won back-to-back games against Washington, against Oregon State, and now they'll face UCLA uh, on Saturday at the Rose Bowl. But this is a Stanford team who can just as easily sit there and say, hey, you know, if if we didn't have a testing problem, uh, you know, we were competitive with Oregon. If we had a starting quarterback, obviously the Cardinals feel like, They could have been in a different position in the first game of the season and then look at the conditions and things they've played through in recent weeks as well. So, again, this was not an ideal situation. It never was going to be due to the abridged and shortened season in the first place. But this is where the Pac-12 finds itself, where the end of the season comes and multiple teams are not going to be able to play at all. Three teams are not playing this week so far, and we hope it only stays at three. If if it were to increase, that means other teams have uh, COVID-related issues, and that's not what anybody wants. But Washington having to pull out of the championship game, Cal and Arizona having to not play, uh, also, again, related to COVID issues, and and their seasons in the process. Of course, Arizona going winless and firing Kevin Sumlin, so that's a different ordeal entirely. But Cal shutting it down and not even electing to play an additional game, uh, which had the opportunity to do so, potentially, potentially, although it it would require quite a uh, substantial 
additional commitment of time. Uh, and even that wouldn't necessarily guarantee that that game got played. So I can re- understand and respect why Cal made the decision it did. Other teams making announcements that they won't seek a bowl, like Stanford, like Washington State, uh, even after this week, even if they win this week. So, And then you've got, like I say, Colorado, who is entering the week thinking it's playing Oregon, now still has to go through the week thinking like it might have to replace USC or not. And it's unclear as of Wednesday morning here whether or not they're actually going to have to or not. And obviously we hope that they don't because, again, we don't want to see SC have to pull out of the championship game. But when I say not just have to play, have to go down to Los Angeles to be on call? Or do they not even have to bother flying to L.A. at all? Uh, you know, Because ultimately, why would they kind of thing if, uh, if SC has no issues? And we certainly hope they don't. So again, hardly ideal for the conference at all. Not fair to anybody. Not ideal for anybody. The integrity of record uh, and the results. The results, not the process. Uh, not the tiebreakers that were agreed to before the season. Everything was followed in accordance with what the Pac-12's uh, presidents, chancellors, athletic directors, you name it, agreed to before the season in terms of should games get canceled, this is what's going to happen, etc. But the results are not what anybody was desiring. There is no team in the league, USC included, who can sit there and say the results so far or what they were looking for. They obviously all wanted to get in every game they could get in. And as I mentioned, obviously not having the first or second place teams play in either division is not what the league wanted, not what the teams wanted. But this is where we find ourselves. And Oregon is not going to be apologizing for it. USC isn't going to be apologizing for it. Washington has nothing to apologize for. And Colorado, not only do they have nothing to apologize for, they probably are the ones who are owed an apology from somebody from the league office uh, due to just the way everything went down for them uh, over the last week. But be that as it may, again, to the game itself on Friday night, the Ducks and the Trojans, uh, obviously the two premier teams and programs in the Pac-12 meeting on the field, and you hope that the game can live up to uh, the pedigrees uh, on and off the field as well and the prestige that is there and the level of talent uh, that will be on the field as these are, uh, in my view, uh, the two most talented rosters uh, in the in the league for sure. USC certainly with the most talented offense, particularly at the wide receiver position. Look, they have the most productive quarterback in the league, and it's definitely been, he, you know, Keaton Slovis is terrific, and he's definitely benefited in a big way with, one, playing in an air raid offense, and two, playing with an air raid offense with so many weapons at wide receiver where you name any one of the top three in particular, and I'm not taking away from their fourth or fifth wide receiver, but Tyler Vaughns and Amon Ross St. Brown and Drake London. And like I say, I'm not taking anything away from Brew McCoy or anyone else in that receiving core, but any one of the big three would be the lead receiver at any other team in the Pac-12 right now. And they have all three of them. They are far and away the most loaded wide receiver core, top to bottom, in the Pac-12. 
I would put them with that trio right up against Alabama's wide receiver core this year before Jalen Waddell got hurt. I would still probably default to Waddell and Devontae Smith as a duo over USC's trio. However, this is a very unbelievably talented wide receiver core that is not taking anything away. And I'm sure we'll be able to look back in retrospect in terms of where everybody gets drafted and careers later on uh, and be able to say exactly how talented those two groups are. But that's really the kind of rarefied air that the USC wide receiver core is in. It's just a spectacular group. Again, Slovis, a, uh, the most productive uh, passer in the league, one of the most accurate passers in the league, just a, a terrific player. Uh, and we'd seen that last year, and you're seeing more of it this year. The offensive line is very good uh, as well. And their running back core, while deep, could be without its leading rusher, uh, Vavai Malpei, uh, spraining his knee against UCLA last week. We'll see if he's able to go, uh, and certainly hope he is able to recover uh, as soon as possible when potentially to play Friday, because one, uh, you want to see you don't want to see any player get hurt, but two, you want to see the best play the best, uh, and you want to see everybody have to earn their keep, uh, and every player have the opportunity to play uh, when you, especially when you get into championship games. Obviously, as good as USC's offense is, they have still struggled at times in terms of uh, consistency and fluidity throughout the course of games. They've obviously had comebacks on a seemingly weekly basis, uh, and because of how potent that offense is, uh, they did it again against UCLA. They did it in their early games against Arizona State uh, and Arizona, who obviously, again, ends up going winless. So uh, those first couple of games was not exactly uh, a huge display that would make you have a lot of confidence necessarily uh, in terms of USC. But they clearly turned a corner a bit uh, the couple of games thereafter. Uh, and then, as I say, they have a rivalry game with UCLA where UCLA was very close uh, to pulling an upset there, but USC is as potent as they are and has the receiving core, as I mentioned, and guys make some unbelievable plays uh, to win that game. So USC's offense is loaded. Their defense, while it has allowed a significant number of points at times this season against UCLA this past week uh, in particular, uh, a little bit in more so week two with Arizona, but that again was a potent offense with very little by way of a defense on the other side to help it. Uh, they have ample talent on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, ample talent. The Trojans are not exactly a team hurting uh, for, for defensive prowess. So even though some of the numbers are not as favorable for USC on the defensive side. They are, one, not anywhere near the same defense as they were a year ago. The change in coordinators to Todd Orlando, who I realize that he uh, obviously was let go from Texas, and that's how he ended up at SC. Folks, if you go back a couple of years, not only did he help Texas in a huge way, Todd Orlando has been one of the better defensive coordinators in the country for some time. And you don't let one, I'm not even going to say necessarily bad, you don't let one maybe statistical outlier kind of year 
cloud the entire perception uh, of a coach's prowess because any number of factors, particularly in the college level, could come into play. Bottom line, he is a terrific defensive mind. Uh, he was, uh, I mean, goodness, only a year before uh, he left Texas, there were stories about uh, basically that his name would be on any short list to be a FBS head coach at a Power 5 program, and his name could get, you know, basically bat, you know, batted around in almost any coaching search. And then a year later, you know, Texas fans can't wait to, to see a change of defensive coordinator because the team didn't quite deliver as much. Well, and here we are a year later, and uh, he's getting some unbelievable talent to deliver some results uh, on an individual basis and sometimes collect the basis for USC's defense, and Texas fans are still not happy. So there you have it. Uh, Todd Orlando is, a ter- again, terrific defensive coordinator, has two of the best edge rushers uh, to work with in the Pac-12. Uh, then you have a safety in Talanoa Hufanga, uh, who has had four interceptions in as many games. He's been remarkably productive for them. And again, edge rushers, and really throughout the front seven, not just the edge rushers. They have good defensive linemen across the board. And this is a team who lost one of the best defensive linemen in the league last year in Jay Tufele. So this is a very talented defense. Uh, you know, No matter what every statistic has to say necessarily, this is a very, very talented defense. So that's a little bit about the Trojans. How do the Ducks match up with some of that? Well... Starting first with the USC offense and how do the Ducks maybe match up with that. Clearly last year, Oregon's defense had a very good showing against USC, and its offense did as well. But sticking with the defense for a moment against that wide receiver core, look, this isn't a knock on Oregon's secondary, which at times this year is has been much, much better than they were even a year ago. However, this is so far and away the biggest test that they will play this season and it's not even close even if Oregon wins against USC on Friday night and earns its way to a New Year's Six Bowl and plays uh, another you know another power five team uh, in a bowl game probably probably the Fiesta Bowl they will still not play a wide receiver core as talented as USC's Uh, so the secondary particularly the outside corners, are going to be tested all game long. It's not going to just be one single matchup uh, that's going to decide it. As I say, when you're that deep at receiver, this is not just going to be, well, when Diamondo Lenore matches up with uh, either Vaughn's or London. No, it's going to be everybody in that secondary uh, matched up against everybody in that wide receiver core because SC is going to move guys around. Uh, There's going to be guys on both the inside and the outside uh, who got an opportunity to match up with Lenore, Michael Wright, Jamal Hill, and you name it. Uh, And I do expect to see the Oregon defense probably employ more of the not just base nickel. Uh, That is going to be by default. I think you're going to see more of the dime package uh, from Andy Avalos this game this week uh, on not just third and long situations. It may be a little bit of a twist on that package where it's not uh, only the designated pass rushers who are in. Uh, I think you might see it where it's just 
more about getting the additional defensive back on the field, the additional safety on the field, uh, depending on which running backs they go with and stuff. But bottom line, I think that this is going to be, a uh, again, a tremendous matchup between the Oregon defense and the USC offense. Uh, but in terms of talent, the receiver core is absolutely the biggest single position group test uh, at the school positions in particular that Oregon's going to play this season, and it's really not even that close. To the other side of the Oregon offense against the USC defense, uh, it starts up front. The Ducks have to, have to, have to uh, do everything they can. To not, it's obvious you always want to protect your quarterback. That's a given. But they have got to take advantage of and try to try to avoid allowing the edge rushers to dictate the down and distance in the situations in early downs. Because when they can pin their ears back in the third and long and third and longer downs, that's when that defense can, like any defense, but with the kind of talent that this defense has, that's when they can be unbelievably threatening. Uh, and SC has benefited from being a disruptive defense uh, and an opportunistic defense who uh, generates a lot of takeaways uh, and I believe is plus five in turnover margin. That's obviously it's it's been the Achilles heel for this offense where it's an offense that's the best offense in the league uh, in terms of points uh, and yards per game. Yet, uh, because of the turnovers, Oregon is three and two rather than four and one, or even rather than five and zero. Oh. Uh, it's been basically the turnovers is the single you know the single most obvious reason. So, with that said, how do you go about doing that? You have any number of ways. One, uh, in 11 personnel, I think you could see uh, whichever tight end is out there, whether that be uh, Hunter Campmore or DJ Johnson, or if Spencer Webb is able to take the field. Uh, and we hear he's been practicing for a couple of weeks now. Uh, so if he and is supposed to be good to go and, and, and in the lineup potentially, with whatever tight ends are out there, I think you could see the potential for those guys to play uh, a role one thing we haven't seen this season from Oregon, and I have no inside info by way of uh, uh, game plan or scheme. I'm just saying one thing we have not seen. Uh, I have no way of knowing if this is something that they've even practiced or, or are doing this season, but we haven't seen it uh, on the field yet in terms of games. You know, at times we saw it last year when they used a sixth lineman as an additional blocker. Um, obviously, they used the tight ends for that, but there were times that you saw a sixth lineman go out there. Could this be the game that, for the first time, Oregon actually does that? Even on some of the fourth down and shorts, they would go out there with two tight ends but they haven't gone out there with a sixth offensive lineman. And not only is that a little bit unusual in general, uh, potentially, I mean, again, a lot of teams use additional linemen, even defensive linemen uh, as blockers in situations like that. It's particularly unusual. I'd say for the ducks, because one, they did it at times last year, albeit a different offensive coordinator, but two, they play six offensive linemen throughout the course of a game. So throwing the sixth one out there 
is not exactly a, a bridge too far. <laughs> They're playing six throughout the course of the game regardless. Uh, so like I said, could that be, in certain instances, something they look to do where the additional lineman is basically, just call it a blocking tight end, but it's a particularly heavy set on the line uh, to try and, you know, like I say, to try and curb and slow down and stunt uh, the potential for disruption off the edge? Sure. Uh, and whether that be with tight ends or additional linemen, that's one way of doing it. Uh, another way is if you spread everybody out that much more uh, and the box can be a little bit thinner and you can either get the ball out very, very quickly uh, in certain instances. And Oregon has used a variety of personnel packages under Joe Moorhead this season from a lot of 11 personnel early in, the, in game one to a lot of 12 personnel with two tight ends uh, to 10 personnel with no tight ends. They have done a little bit of everything. Uh, so there is no telling which direction uh, they may take things this week against the Trojans. They've shown a variety of things. That multiplicity helps, helps in a big way. The thing that bodes well for them is they are still one of the most explosive teams uh, in the league, particularly relative to last year. And USC is also explosive for that matter on offense. But Oregon is an explosive offense. Now, again, you can go back to the turnovers. You can go to those issues. Hey, they can still throw the ball very effectively. Tyler Shuck has still shown uh, really good decision-making at times. I know everybody wants to go back to just a couple of interceptions against Oregon State that ultimately proved very costly. But he is ultimately on the body of work for this entire season. His first season as a starter has been unbelievably effective. So as a whole... Uh, a lot to look forward to this week uh, with the Pac-12 championship game on Friday night between Oregon and USC. We'll look to recap it afterwards and then set up uh, the discussion for what lies ahead for the Ducks once we know the outcome of Friday night's game. Will it be a New Year's Six Bowl berth, uh, again, most likely the Fiesta Bowl, or will it be a different bowl game. There's only three other Pac-12 bowls still standing, and if SC wins, uh, should that occur, you would have to think that Colorado might get the invite to the Alamo Bowl, in which case then there's only the Independence Bowl in Shreveport, Louisiana on December 26th, and the Armed Forces Bowl against an SEC opponent uh, in Fort Worth, Texas on December 31st. So there's finite options uh, should the Ducks lose and if they win, as I say, that this is a big swing game and that the high end is a New Year's Six Bowl. The low end for SC is, in my view, the Alamo. But the low end for the Ducks is you name it. There's really uh, any, I mean, you, it could be any of the other three Pac-12 Bowls that are standing. It could be that, depending on what everybody else in the league chooses to do, I mean, with the uh, NCAA Football Oversight Committee giving the green light for teams to pursue uh, additional games played on campus rather than uh, true bowl games, per se. I'm not speaking for Oregon here. I have no uh, you know, particular uh, detail in terms of what uh, the athletic department is thinking uh, should that occur. Obviously, I think right now they're thinking about winning a game on Friday night and then crossing that bridge when they have to get there. Uh, and with with a Friday night championship game, that would afford them 
the luxury of the time on Saturday to either plan and think ahead to a potential Fiesta Bowl matchup and maybe even watch their likely opponent play or uh, to consider and go over uh, as a department and with the team and the players uh, what their options are if USC is to win on Friday night. So again, we'll discuss it more uh, once we get the outcome uh, after Friday night's game. And also, uh, we'll certainly get into it more after these games, but on the hardwood, don't want to uh, omit uh, men's and women's basketball after the week that they had and a weekend of uh, beating rivals, Oregon obviously beating Washington men uh, in Seattle on last Saturday, and then the Oregon women beating Oregon State on Sunday. The Ducks will be back in action against San Francisco on Thursday night, that being the men, and then on the weekend, uh, the women go up to Washington and Washington State. Uh, so we'll go over, like I say, and see uh, what lies ahead uh, in terms of uh, on the football field after Friday night's game, and then uh, have the discussion about what lies ahead on the basketball court after we get through uh, this weekend as well. Until then, have a great weekend, everybody, and enjoy watching all the games.